You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to New Models. Andreas Malm's book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, published by Verso in 2021, was a successful provocation. Its proactive defense of property damage and sabotage in response to the climate crisis was widely discussed among activists, academics, and in mainstream media outlets. Financial Times included it in their Best Books of 2021 Climate and Environment list, and an op-ed by Malm himself was published by the New York Times in 2022. Of course, when David Remnick interviewed the author on the New Yorker Radio Hour, right-wing pundits from Fox and beyond slammed them for hosting a climate change extremist, an insurrectionist, and for, quote-unquote, literally platforming a terrorist. But perhaps what no one saw coming was the book being adapted into a feature film. Not a documentary, a fictional dramatization in the form of an ensemble cast crime thriller with mom's input and blessing. How to Blow Up a Pipeline opens in U.S. theaters today, April 7th, 2023, and it is incredibly good. Not only in our opinion, but adding fuel to the fire, according to the film's 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, aggregating 64 reviewers. If the right was concerned before, they're about to have a full-blown meltdown. Yes, even the AMC theater in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, is now literally platforming a terrorist. In January of this year, we were lucky enough to be joined in Berlin by Daniel Goldhaber, the director and co-writer of the film adaptation of How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Speaking with a young indie filmmaker whose adaptation of a controversial Verso book became the only film to be picked up from the Toronto International Film Festival that year, our conversation is wide-ranging, touching on climate activism and tactics in the media and on the ground, the thinking strategy and process behind the making of the film, the current and future state of the film industry, both indie and corporate, and the dynamics of our media ecosystem at large. The result is an expansive companion piece to the film How to Blow Up a Pipeline, hence us waiting to release the episode until the film's opening. And we highly recommend everyone to go see it, whether before or after listening. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is director, screenwriter, and producer Daniel Goldhaber. Let's get into it. We're in the New Models Berlin studio headquarters with Daniel Goldhaber. Daniel is a filmmaker, American, who directed the film called Cam in 2018, which is a psychological horror film set in the world of webcam porn. And he is also the director of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which he co-wrote, directed, and produced. And it's based on the book by the same name, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, by Andreas Malm. So, Daniel, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Firstly, what are you doing here in the middle of January? Who comes to Berlin <laughs> in the middle of January? Um, Was it to, like, DJ a show? <laughs> yeah, no, if only. I mean, I love Berlin. I had some festivals the second half of January. And then also, you know, there are some... 
climate activists and organizers and a handful of filmmakers that I've been in touch with mostly through Andreas, who wrote the book that the movie is based on and who, you know, is a European climate activist and did this preview screening and soaking up everything else that Berlin has to offer. I know that this past weekend you were just in the West in Lutzerat, which if anyone's been following climate news has been a real flashpoint for the climate activism movement in Europe. For anyone who's not familiar with this, Lutzerat is on the edge of what is one of the largest open pit mines in all of Europe. And as the mine experience Bands, it's been raising towns. It's been displacing people. And this has been going on for some time. This is for brown coal? For brown coal, which is the least efficient kind of fossil fuel energy. It's the most polluting per kilowatt hour. So it's a very mediagenic site. It's a very cute hamlet. Um, is the place with tree houses? Yeah. Yeah. So what I was hoping is you could speak to us a little bit about the direct action activism scene around climate here in Europe. I mean, I know you have a little bit of a background in activism, but really you're a filmmaker. So I know you come to this as an observer. And what did you see? Yeah, I mean, I have virtually no background as an activist. Anything that I've done that could be considered activism has been through the lens of being a filmmaker. My most significant background when it comes to climate is both of my parents have worked in climate research. Mm. I think I very much just grew up with the sense of doom mm. hanging over me and and also with being kind of raised with the knowledge of climate change back before that was something that was really publicly accepted. I think it's very easy to forget that even back in 2010, you could easily get in fights with reasonable people about whether or not climate change was even real. And I think now you've gotten to a place where there's a lot more acceptance over the reality of it and yet a very a lack of social will to actually do anything about mm -hmm. it. And then my first work in climate, I, I worked on a documentary film called Chasing Ice as an assistant oh, right. editor. That was kind of my first job in film. And through that process, started understanding a lot more about how filmmakers interface with activism. And so I've always kind of entered into these spaces from that perspective of not thinking of myself as an activist, but thinking of myself as somebody who is a filmmaker and a storyteller and trying to understand what the people who are doing the real work is and then figure out how to tell stories about it in a way that amplifies it. I mean, what is direct action without a media platform to promote that action to a larger audience? I mean, Lutzeroth is maybe a good example of that. You know, it was already set in law, I think a year ago, that that was going to happen. But the image of this small hamlet next to this open pit mine is an incredibly mediagenic image. I think that's true, but I also think that people in media can often confuse the importance and the difference between engaging in an act of direct action mm. and telling the media story around it. Because ultimately, yes, telling the story and amplifying it, bringing more people in, but the thing that's paramount are the people that are actually on the ground building tree houses, strapping themselves to the top of poles, actually engaged in action, in direct confrontation with police. These are not things that I really do. And I have nothing but like, not just the utmost respect for the people who do that, but it's important to recognize that making media about that, consuming media about that is not even anywhere in the same conversation as a replacement for that action mm -hmm. itself. Fair enough. And I do think that because we live in such a hypermediated world, it can become really easy and 
and I have myself fallen into this trap numerous times to think that the media of the thing is a replacement for the thing. Mm. And mm. I think that when it comes to action writ large, that confusion is something that I think has really destabilized and complicated the mechanisms of direct action as we understand them. Because all of these tactics and all of these strategies and all of these things that worked for generations, you know, we're doing them, but they're not having the same kind of effect as they once did. And that's why I think when you do look at something like Lutzerat, where I don't necessarily want to use the word militaristic, Mm -hmm. but when you're there, there is a boundary, you know, they are fighting over land and the people who are resisting the mining company are not armed, but that doesn't make it any less of like very active resistance. And there is a real ingenuity to what they're doing. I mean, the comment about media seeming like a form of activism that you're doing your part if you're engaged in amplification when others are doing direct action, etc. I mean, I always imagine, you know, the communist uprising of 2024, there'd be like 80,000 people in the podcasting brigade and they'd have a really (laughs) difficult time like finding actual soldiers, you know. You've kind of uh, got ahead of a criticism by acknowledging that too. I mean, we do see this increase in mimetic attacks. I mean, what I found really interesting reading Mom's book was the book talks about how the suffragettes in the early 20th century in Great Britain actually were damaging artworks in museums and the museums did have this debate about whether they needed to close to the public. They talked about banning uh, parasols and like mittens for women (laughs) who are attending the museum. But I've been very aware of hierarchies of politics and of issues. Most of the issues that say divide America are so much smaller in scale than climate. True. I wonder though, maybe how you just map the landscape with the traditional political left-right divide in regards to climate action. The way that I think about it is that Much of what we are dealing with and fighting over is climate or it is something that is being deployed to distract from Mm. climate. You look at the global political motivation post-Vietnam and what you see as a primary thrust in so much geopolitical machination is a fight for oil, for energy, and now for water, for arable land. The thing is, is that people have known about what's coming with climate since the 70s. And a lot of people who are smart have been stacking the deck for themselves it's important to recognize that everything from the war in Iraq, the war in Syria, the civil war in Syria, the war in Ukraine, destabilization in Darfur, Brazil, all of these things are things that can be linked back to climate. They can also be linked to the internet, to the nature of how the internet was constructed, to things like that. But I think a big part of what I'm talking about is also globalization, Mm -hmm. industrialization. Climate is the consequence to these things. Um, Again, when you start getting under the root of where a lot of these problems are coming from, they're coming from the nature of how we built a globalized system after World War II. Mm -hmm. And virtually everything we're dealing with is those chickens coming home to roost. Ultimately, The reason that I do see climate being something that can be and eventually will be a very unifying idea is simply because nobody can escape it. Everybody is at least somewhat affected. You know, it's a question of 
are you affected to the level of inconvenience or are you affected to the level of the destruction of your community, death, illness? But I think that despite the fact that climate is a unifying problem, that doesn't mean that many people will actually agree on the necessary tactics required to fix the problem. It's this question of how are people educated? How are people informed? And to tie it back into this question of where does it matter being a media creator in all of this? Okay, climate is ultimately going to destabilize the lives of every single person on planet Earth. So figuring a way out of this situation is a question of how do you get all of those people aligned to do something about it that's actually going to protect our ability to exist in a sustainable way Mm -hmm. on this planet, you know? And that's the place where you can start thinking very strategically about how you're using and engaging with levers and mechanisms of media. So I would say, you know, with Pipeline, the development of the movie was not just us thinking about what kind of story we wanted to tell, but speaking very directly to activists, trying to get a sense of what kind of story is valuable for you, Mm. for us to tell. And, you know, those are conversations that started with Andreas and went through a number of people that he connected us to. And I don't want to assign too reductive a purpose to the film, but acts of climate disruption, acts of active resistance against the fossil fuel industry and the forces of capitalism are coming, they're here, and who is telling the story of that? By and large, for most people, it is mainstream, corporate-driven news media. At the same time, what is important is that there is a context that speaks the same kind of language that popular corporate news media speaks. And I think that one thing that I hope that Pipeline can do in at least a very broad and simplistic way is if somebody does attack an oil pipeline and somebody does watch this movie, they may start thinking about that act in a completely different way because Mm. they're being presented with a similarly poppy look into why would somebody do this. Right. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of other things that I I think and hope the movie can do. I think it's also very productive to provoke this question in mainstream debate, both in culture writ large, but also inside of the climate and activist community of, you know, it seems to me to be a foregone conclusion that tactics fighting climate change need to evolve and escalate. But the question is, how? Why? Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? What tactics are going to be necessary? And I think that the movie provides an emotional and cathartic experience where you kind of are able to be a party to the escalation of tactics. And I hope that you come out of that with that catharsis and there can be conversation where you start wrestling with that emotion and you say, okay, I've now had this emotion linked to this thing in a way where I never felt like I could put the two together. So where do I go from here and how do I engage with my community in a way that that takes us to a different place? I mean, I actually mentioned like mimetic attacks in terms of climate action. I don't know, throwing soup on paintings and and things like this. And in our contemporary media consumption, where people are spending over half their day sometimes consuming media, you would think mimetic attacks are really like, that would be the strongest tactic to raise attention. But people forget we had climate driven self-immolations right. in Washington, D.C. that were barely mentioned in the news. And in a way, mimetic attacks don't seem like 
it's actually the best strategy right now well, in, in a very strange way. Something that's really surprising, I think. And tactical, actual, like, sheer material, infrastructural, a blockade, tactical attacks like, um, are yeah. absolutely, I think, the way forward. But, you know, so Julian sent me a YouTube link to this. There's a young creative director called Eugene Angelo, and he was speaking about the job of the creative director and, you know, post-Virgil time, let's say. And he said something that really stuck with me. He says, right now, everyone's talking about how Apple's energy is waning. It seems like Apple is maybe receding post Joni Ive or something. And he goes, the thing is that Apple's actually killing it in terms of its product. Its problem is that it needs a new image. So in the late 1980s and 90s, it developed this visionary idea of what personal tech might look like. One that like really brought people into a- Almost like an archetype a, or something. Almost like a new archetype. He, he innovated an archetype. And he said more than even the technology, which itself is good, but he said the thing that Apple really innovated was this new image, this new archetype. And that was necessary, right, for getting us to where we are with computers, for better or worse. And that was Apple's innovation. But now they haven't innovated a new archetype. They haven't been able to push that image forward for the past at least, let's say, 15 years since the iPhone came out, right? That was sort of the last thing they did that was really taking us to a new space. And I kind of feel it's a similar issue with climate activism, where as we see in How to Blow Up a Pipeline and also where we see in Andreas Malm's argument, which is part of the argument that your film makes, is that these pure love hippie images of dressing up in costumes and making soup for everybody, which are like lovely gestures, but they're not strong enough to inspire like a new image. Or you have Greta as a totem, but that also appeals to a particular Right. And you know, that also Greta came onto the scene now like four or five years ago at this point. And so the thing that, you know, you could almost say is that climate activism needs a new creative director. It needs like a new image. And I'm curious actually, actually how the idea of blowing up a pipeline might fit into this. And maybe that's kind of necessary background for why you chose to give context to this particular action, why that was a poignant one for you. I mean, also just image as like this icon that organizes a community or action. I mean, I I stumbled across on YouTube the other day all these very well-produced videos of how to make meth, all these other sort of stimulant-type chemicals. Really, really well-produced. And the YouTube channel that made it, it was called BreakingBad.Expert. And the show Breaking Bad was such a strong image, such a strong attractor, that it got all of these people with chemistry experience together to make this really well-produced sort of media channel and organization about how to... DIY your own stimulants. I mean, Breaking Bad did not not intend to do that, but it became an icon that attracted this community. It's doing like real dangerous criminal actions. And I wonder if that maybe works loosely as an analogy for what you imagine how to blow up an oil pipeline might operate. Uh, A movie that really inspired my thinking about this that I actually think is to some extent an illustration of kind of what you're getting at with your... Apple analogy, which I simultaneously appreciate and bristle at. Oh, yeah, same. Uh, you know, um, but I think it's a I think it's a valuable way to think. But one of the best movies in the last you know ten years for me about activism, if not kind of the only movie about activism that I actually think has the juice, is Ava DuVernay's Selma. And I think that movie is really quite underrated. And what I really appreciate about Selma is it's a movie that is actually 
yes, it is about Martin Luther King Jr., but it's it's about tactics, it's about strategy, it's about public relations, mm-hmm. and it's about the moral complications of the intersection between all of those things. There's this one moment that really, I think, changed the way I thought about activism, but also the role even a biopic can have in telling the story of activism, you know, many years later. There is a moment in the film where, this is my recollection of it, where there are a bunch of protesters on the courthouse steps. They've all gone to register to vote. And Martin Luther King Jr. is present and he's kind of instructed everybody, they're not being let in. He's instructed everybody to kind of kneel and wait to be let in to register to vote. And one of the people next to him goes, you know, they're going to be beaten by the police for doing this. And Martin Luther King Jr. goes, I know, but I'm going to get the shot. Mm. I'm going to get the image that I need. Mm -hmm. And then that's going to go out in the papers. And then when we do the march, people will come. Mm -hmm. I don't know how historically accurate that is. I believe it. And I think that it's a very powerful idea because it's a very morally complicated one. This is a guy who the movie makes very clear is never putting his body on the front line, Mm. who is telling his followers to put their bodies on the front line so that he can produce the media that he needs to build the movement to achieve the goal. Mm. And I think that the way that Ava DuVernay kind of handles all of this in the movie is quite remarkable. And it's a movie that I also really appreciate because I think that one of the inspiration points for Pipeline is that on the left, we perpetually, when we tell stories of activism, tell stories of tragedy, Mm. um, tell stories of failure, while we have kind of totally handed the keys over to the right and the fascists to tell stories of success and victory. And I think it's really important that we tell stories that illustrate what success or victory could look like. And that is also something that Selma does. And that, again, Selma does in a way that is not saccharine, Mm -hmm. um, but that is deeply engaged with these questions of strategy and tactics. Now, I think that one of the things that we struggle with today is that getting an image on the front page of a newspaper no longer functions the same way. Newspapers don't function the same way. (laughs) Exactly. None of it does. And I think that part of the reason why trying to engage with telling these stories through conventional social media is not just that the revolution will not be televised. The revolution cannot be communicated on corporate-owned platforms. And on non-corporate platforms, it's so distributed that sometimes it's difficult to build critical mass. Almost as if that's the point. Yeah, uh, exactly. And and I think that one thing that everybody is really struggling with is that I think when you have seen a number of mimetic revolutions that have kind of transpired, you know, in this online to real world space, often I think they have done quite a bit for the raising of awareness, for the furthering of cultural thought. At the same time, I think that they have had very little practical effect and in many times, in many ways, the reverse practical effect. Tahir is an example of that. I think, you know, the Arab Spring, generally speaking, you know, I think that you look at the impact of the defund the police Mm -hmm. movement in 2020 and the unfortunate fact that 
Police budgets on average since then have gone up in the intervening two years. And again, that's not to say that there isn't a tremendous amount that came out of that movement. But on this very practical policy level, I think often what you've seen is a lot of local good, like there's a lot of DAs that I'm excited about mm-hmm. getting elected around the country. There's a lot of specific things where people, I think, have been able to build off of the back of that movement. But on the state, national level, when it comes to a lot of the kind of actual legislation and laws, we've backslid. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really something that's important to keep our eyes on is the fact that I don't think that we have yet figured out a way to align our tactics with public relations in a way that is actually meaningfully leading towards actual systemic change on the level at which it needs to happen. And I think that when you're talking about the need for a new creative director, I don't necessarily know if that's the case because I think that there is a tremendous amount of good material that's being made. I think that it's not a question of aesthetics. It's a question of strategy. Hmm. It's a question of, especially from a media standpoint, how do you actually mobilize people in a meaningful way? Right. And then how do you communicate the need for that motivation, the need for that mobilization, and how do you then motivate that mobilization in a meaningful way. I mean, and interestingly, that's the same question that like any media outlet means. I believe that mainstream media almost doesn't even exist. There are still like dominant forms of media, but that's why like magazines have collapsed. That's why retailers are throwing ad money every single place they can and have no real clue of how to galvanize a consumer base to, you know, make their jeans the new favorite jeans. I mean, we've really, the loss of the mainstream, that's just a phenomenon that's happened. We don't need to mourn it, but it's a challenge that is affecting every single sector, both climate and commercial and, you know, across the board. But I don't think we've lost the mainstream. Where does it exist in your mind? It's social media. But the mainstream, I mean, that's the- Is the app itself. Uh Uh-huh. I think that- One of the great errors in the way that we have told the story of social media is we've referred to it as a media platform and not a video game. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of immediately start thinking of everybody who uses Instagram is playing Instagram the game. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if I'm playing Fortnite, there's a hundred ways to play Fortnite, there's a million ways to play Minecraft. There's all sorts of different ways that I can engage with that experience, but it's ultimately still the same right. platform. But the com- so, right, the analogy works on the level of the commons is the infrastructure. However, the message is not a unified message. So it's like, yes, we all share that infrastructure, and that is an interesting way to think about it. But we don't share the same language set. I mean, there was like a certain narrative on the nightly news that everyone more or less knew. And maybe you were conservative or more liberal on it, but everybody kind of had that narrative. Now, with the exception of the queen dying, there's very few things that everybody finds out about all at once, right? And I I think that maybe this is the thing that I think is helpful in thinking about is absolutely there has been a disruption of mainstream narrative, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean there's been a disruption of mainstream culture. Because I think that the problem is when you're playing a video game, the narrative is the infrastructural feedback loop. Right. So what is uniting people that engage in social media is a chase for attention, for likes, for human connection, for communication. That's true. And then the narrative that you enter into to engage in that has become 
completely decentralized. Right. But that doesn't mean that the ultimate experience of everybody engaging in Instagram is not actually the same. And maybe this is something that is worth thinking about when we start thinking about a question of how do you bring people together is actually there is quite a lot experientially that is unifying people that are engaging in media through the use of digital technology. It's the narrative that's the problem. And obviously, when you come down to the nature of how that narrative has been disrupted, it has to do with filter bubbles and algorithmic distribution and fundamentally a lack of scarcity when it comes to the creation of content and media. And, you know, on some level, I think that truly the only way to like hijack the system is through engaging with those same tools. And mm -hmm. that's certainly something that somebody like Donald Trump did effectively in 2016. True, right. Um, you know, like how did he really turn the tide? He hijacked Twitter's algorithm. He created massive amounts of content at, at very low cost. He essentially figured out a way to take the incentive structures of most of mainstream media and turn them towards himself in a way where they mutually benefited. True. And you could say the same of the Greta Thunberg machine right. also did that, right? Yes. Also played into the incentive structures of this media Yes, to bring millions of teenagers to hang out together on Fridays. I mean, Donald Trump also practiced fiction crafting also, you know? And I actually wanted to ask you if you think in this current media landscape, is fiction actually a stronger way to get a collectively motivating message through than non Like climate facts. I mean, yeah. I think people deliberately don't click on some of these scary headlines because they've heard so many, they can't bring themselves to read or about just, one more. They don't have the novelty. They don't have the emotional right. weight connected to them, whereas fiction could. I mean, I think about when we're talking about image too. Yeah. I mean, I do see your film as being an extremely strong image and organizing totem or icon. let's get into your film because yeah. I mean, we've been withholding it. So let's the go there. The film is a type mood. Right, like it it's is. literally like I watched it, and now I know, like, oh, blow up a pipeline type mood. Like the soundtrack is subtle but relentless. Like the the, the pacing, the style, the yeah. way it feels, like it's a vibe. It and is. like I think that pipeline vibe is like I can imagine being an organizing image and organizing totem for young people to organize around. Yeah. So yeah, I guess your, your thoughts on fiction or maybe crafting a type vibe too. Yeah. I mean, I would say that there's been very little conscious thought that goes into the crafting of the vibe. I, I should also say that I directed the film, but you know, I have a collective of four of us who kind of collectively authored the film together. So, you know, anything that is the pipeline vibe is very much, I think, a reflection of the four of us together and the combination of our individual idiosyncrasy and interests, you know, and that's myself, Ariella Barrer, who co-wrote, produced, um, and is one of the actors in the film, Jordan Scholl, who co-wrote and executive produced the movie, and Dan Garber, who edited the film. And I think that, you know, a lot of that was us figuring this out together, I think. The aesthetic principle that guided writing of the movie was wanting to mm, tell a story about eco-terrorism that was a, basically just Ocean's Eleven for eco-terrorism that was a fun <laughs> heist movie that delivered a victory that was also kind of very intimately engaged with, you know, questions of political theory, questions of who is an activist and why, and then questions of just like quite literally, how do you blow up a pipeline? Uh -huh. um, you know, in production, it was really just about trying to make it feel real, 
make it feel like you were kind of watching it unfold in front of you. But to do that in a way that was not kind of a faux documentary, but that was still using the language of action cinema to an extent. It's a genre film at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it it yeah. uses that as a vehicle. So it was this balance of like, how do you kind of make it feel larger than life while also ground it? And in the edit, it was just about trying to like take that material that we got in production and get it to work and deliver on like eight different main characters, you know, a lot of political theory, a lot of really like nitty gritty, like how is a bomb made and and kind of get the audience through that in a way that's entertaining. For those who haven't seen it at the time that they're listening now, could you just give us the skeleton structure of it without the spoiler? Why don't I give a little bit more context of, about the entire project Great. maybe? The, the movie is based on a book that was written by a Swedish Marxist academic named Andreas Malm that essentially outlines the notion that every social justice movement in history is at the very least disrupted civic order, destroyed property, engaged in forms of sabotage. And that if the climate movement wants to have a shot at winning, we have to at the very least consider these tactics, but that the existential peril posed by climate change not only provides a moral justification for the destruction of fossil fuel infrastructure, but also debatably moral obligation to destroy fossil fuel infrastructure. The book is very much a manifesto, but in reading the book, I think that among the many things that we were inspired by, inspired by the title, inspired by the kind of genre hook the title provides, you know, to kind of return to this thing that you mentioned about what the movie is maybe doing is very much a direct adaptation of what I feel like the book does and the reason why I think the book took off in the way that it does, which is I think that one of the things that makes climate change an extremely difficult thing to fight is that we have never faced anything before in which there is no clear articulation of the bad guy, mm -hmm. in which we also all actively every day, no matter who you are basically on planet Earth, are participating in it to various levels, you know, be it a little bit or a lot, a lot. But to fight the battle, you have to engage with doing the bad thing. To make a movie about blowing up a pipeline, we have to generate God knows how much waste. <laughs> God knows how much of a carbon footprint. But I think obviously the people that are keeping this machine running are doing harm at levels, you know, yeah. hundreds, thousands. Private fold. jet use yes. has gone up over the past year, uh, yes. the past couple of years. Yeah. Yes. But the point is, is that that's one of the things that makes it a very difficult fight. The core principle to me uh, about the book and what Andreas articulates that I think has really resonated with people, even though I haven't necessarily always seen them speak about it this way, is he identifies a target. He identifies a target and he provides an extraordinarily compelling moral justification for the target, which is to say there is no one person, there is no one organization, there is no one politician, there is only the machines that are killing us. And if a machine is killing you, you have a right to destroy it. Mm -hmm. And I think that argument is really compelling. And I think that what the movie does that I think from a narrative level or from an image level that I think is equally as rousing is that this is a, an action movie in which the bad guy is a pipeline. Mm -hmm. And I think that what that does in one's thinking about how do I engage with this fight against fossil fuel use in this fight to try to save the planet, now all of a sudden a target has been identified. And I think that it's a target that people can get behind because who the fuck gives a shit about a giant hunk of metal that is killing you? Mm -hmm. Like, 
that is something that I think all of a sudden people are like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. there are 200,000 miles of liquid petroleum pipeline in the United States. That is a completely unpoliceable, unmonitorable amount of infrastructure. If we do really care about the fight against climate change, why aren't we disrupting that? Mm-hmm. You know, And I think that that's really a very compelling and provocative question to ask. And right. I- your film also, though, and I think one of the strengths is because, yes, I agree, who who can't get behind that? But your film also has a structure that allows the characters to ask, well, but there's going to be collateral damage. Yes. There are people who work for this pipeline. There are people who rely on the energy that, you know, will be Even harmed. if you shut off the oil, right. you're still going to spill some. It. And I think that that's part of what I'm getting at. There is yeah. no there is no tactic that has no collateral damage right. here. And I think that I have my own complicated feelings about sabotage. But I think that what's important is that, and, and what the provocation of the movie is, is to essentially present them, but to also present them in the language and the vernacular and the narrative structure and rhythms of a commercial Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. And I think that by essentially bringing these extremely provocative ideas into the vernacular of the mainstream, you do something. You kind of force people to grapple with something at that level of Hollywood simplicity. And I think that there's value in that. And I think that there used to be a lot more movies that kind of played with that sense of danger. And I think that for many reasons, it's very hard to get them made. And I was very lucky that I had you know, partners that supported making this movie exactly the way that we made it. But I think that that's a big part of what it's doing. There's a lot of space in the film, in a sense, where like the dialogue is really efficient and the shots are... Just the way it's edited, you have headspace in the film. Although so it's not a slow film. It's not film. slow at all. No, the pacing is actually like genius. The pacing and is because you're constantly- there's a, I mean, it reminds like uh, Azor was this way yeah. where it was very sparse in terms of its pace and its dialogue. But because there was a mystery that was unwrapping, you were never bored because you were mentally also always engaged. Right. And I think this was a, a great way of making a sort of deliberately paced, but still uh, Hollywood open, level yeah. of engagement or, or I guess I attention mean, it's capture. not like attention capturing through like Marvel tactics, which are like have 13 things happening simultaneously so at all times. actually just over at this point. Right. You just, it looks like, like you're watching someone's Twitch stream or something and you just kind of space out on most of it. But this is just efficient and your attention is focused and there's enough headspace in it where you can actually reflect as you're watching the film. And I really appreciate Appreciate that. So it functions as this Hollywood film, but one that's not using gimmicks just to like keep you somehow engaged. It does it through the narrative. It does it through the editing. It does it through the cinematography, through the music, through the characters. And for that, it's like it's an energizing film to watch. Well, but I mean, the genre itself could be considered kind of a also, gimmick, though, that's, right? That's I true. Mean, in that a, is in a the way, gimmick. It's a, maybe. It's a, it is a narrative sort of an aesthetic sort of rapper that is proven efficient at, right. at holding attention and propelling it forward. Right. And so with this being a thriller, I think, yeah, I mean, it really does that effectively and also leaves the audience space to think about what's happening and reach the justifications themselves. Did you deliberately allow space for the audience to find their own conclusions rather than putting things in? Was that something that maybe changed in the edit or... Yeah, how did you weigh the being didactic or just leaving the viewer to find out for themselves? To this question of didacticism, that was something that more than anything we really 
wrestled with in the edit, the whole team that made the film, like we are all real big believers in feedback. So we did, God, 10, 15 little teeny preview screenings of the movie as we were making it. Because as written, most of these kind of scenes of theory were significantly longer because the movie was adapted from work of political theory. And in writing the film, I think that there was a lot of, you know, feedback to, you know, justify the actions more. And as soon as you're seeing something on screen, as soon as you're with characters and with these actors, you need very little justification mm. for what they're doing. And so what we were really weighing a lot of the time in kind of the edit was trying to provoke just enough thought in the audience that they could understand the rhetorical argument basically that the book was making without making it feel prescriptive, without making the film feel like it was making the same argument, without also kind of destabilizing the way that it just feels like a movie. You know, so uh, at a certain point, there was a lot of recognition of like, the thing that makes most of these arguments the best is the book. And it's completely legitimate to say if the audience wants to dig much further into the nuance of, you know, the historical precedence for property destruction and sabotage. There's a great 150-page manifesto that is in the movie title. (laughs) You know, like, like, go buy it, read it, you know, steal it, whatever. At a certain point, we were kind of like, let's just bring it back to what really matters for the characters, what really matters for the story. Let's try to just make the best film that we can and recognize that the film is also a translation of the ideas. It's putting the ideas into action. In doing that, it's also challenging the ideas. It's grappling with them. It's adding color to them. And Andreas, who wrote the book, was, you know, a part of the editing process. And as we, you know, took these scenes and kind of whittled them down and whittled them down, you know, he was a great partner in both kind of mourning the loss of the dialogue while always being like, no, 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 I think it's better. I think it's better, you know, like, <laughs> like he's like, I, I'm, I'm sad. He's like, I thought you guys had a, a brilliant line there. You know, you, you did it better than I did in the book, but, but take it out. It's, you're right. Like, it's better to just be with what the movie needs and what the story needs than what the characters need. And to be clear, we cut two and a half minutes out of the movie, two days before picture locking. Oh like, God. you know, like this was not, this was not an easy process. There were, there were some real darlings that we just at a certain point had to slice out of the film and it made the movie better. It's also very interesting because it's, you know, we had complete creative control over this process. You know, our financiers were awesome collaborators the whole time. There were never any prescriptive notes. And there was never a moment where anybody was like, you have to cut this because it's too provocative. Mm -hmm. That was never it. And actually, most of the people who we got the most pushback or negative feedback from on some of these, you know, more didactic sections came from leftists, came from activists, Mm -hmm. came from people who felt like the second that you start putting a rhetorical argument into the mouth of characters inside of a drama, there's a way that the film can start to feel arrogant can start to feel like it's preaching like it's better than you like it knows more than you like it's telling you how to think and i think that 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 is not what we want the movie to be and so it was really about trying to again provoke thought and provoke the imagination of the viewer and get enough of the argument in that you come out of the film and you kind of get a sense of what the book was saying but it's it's operating in much more of an emotional space than mm. than necessarily a, 
an academic space. You also included a conservative character. I was just going to say, can you talk about the the ensemble? Because it was, I mean, Julian, I know you mentioned that it reminded you of Hackers a bit, where you had this cast of different archetypes who come from different places. Oh, very stylish. Oh, very stylish. I mean, the styling's great without being like overdetermined. Like a dream squad. Totally. Like the most diverse, coolest friend group, how you want your friend group to be. Right. I mean, can you speak a moment about how you built the characters and maybe the cast? as well and what that process was of workshopping those characters. Yeah, so specifically when it comes to, you know, there is a conservative character in the film. I think when we started the development process, we really just wanted to try to engaging with the heist movie genre. Like, you know, you're kind of picking a representative mosaic of people. It was about trying to talk about the diverse kinds of reasons why somebody might feel motivated to go blow up a pipeline and not wanting to feel like everybody was coming from the same place, but also to ask the audience to contend with just how widespread this is. And we didn't want to limit that in terms of, you know, geographic location, in terms of identity, in terms of political background, because ultimately climate change is something that is completely agnostic about those Mm -hmm. things, despite the fact that the people who are most predominantly affected by climate change in the current moment tend to be, you know, people with lower incomes, generally speaking, communities of color, but it's not limited to that. And that was something that I think we wanted to kind of acknowledge in the film. And so, you know, you have everything from privileged people at college and or, you know, privileged and not privileged people who are part of, you know, the anarchist punk scene to a conservative who is kind of engaging with this because of reasons of like family and land rights to people who have grown up in a refinery town and, you know, are dealing with the health ramifications of that. So, you know, just trying to get a sense of like, yeah, the the fossil fuel industry in particular is something that the kind of toxic tendrils stretch everywhere. We also very much did not want the film to feel like it had a singular protagonist. I think we wanted it to feel like a decentralized narrative. We wanted it to feel like There isn't a singular hero. There isn't a single narrative you're following. The narrative is the blowing up of the pipeline. There are debatably one or two too many characters, but I think that was also kind of the idea is to put the audience in a space where they wouldn't necessarily be able to easily attach to any one Mm, or the other, mm. but they would have to contend with the mosaic, not with kind of an individual narrative. When it came to the casting, it was about finding people that had like a close personal relationship to their story in whatever way that manifested. So some people are playing characters who are very close to who they are as people. Some people are playing characters who are very far away from who they are as actual people. But I think that everybody came to this project and there was a mutual desire to collaborate because there was a real, like, spark when... I mean, we did no real tapings, you know, for... Mm. I didn't audition anybody in the main cast. It was all just through talking about Mm. these ideas and, you know, knowing their work, but it was about... How do you relate to this? How do you engage with this? Do so you like have a conversation with yeah. them and we're yeah. just like, oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Huh. Nobody read. Huh. Basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's also in a really great instruction for activism with regards to the fact that all of the characters were very different, sometimes even what you would consider radically politically different in the scope of uh, social media or something. But there were never conflicts below the surface of 
getting done the mission yeah. of blowing up this pipeline. It's yeah. like the hierarchy of political necessity was very clear in that climate is the most important. And there were places where you could have exploited that tension and the film doesn't. Carly, you've been in plenty of activist situations where nothing can get done because <laughs> of true. small differences. That's true. So uh, I think that's instructive in itself, whether that was deliberate or, or Oh, no, not. I mean, it was very deliberate, in part because, again, stories of leftist organizing. Yes, in real life, it can be very difficult to organize because of the kind of leftist desire to to nitpick everything to right, death. Right, right. Um, and also there are plenty of very good reasons why political differences can cause difficulty in organizational difficulty and lack of effective safe spaces in organizing circles. However, just because that's how it is in real life doesn't need mean that is how we should narrativize it back to ourselves. Mm-hmm. That is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy where the only stories that we tell about leftism are, again, stories of failure, stories of institutions that can't actually get anything done, mm-hmm. stories of ideological differences getting in the way of the action. And so it was such a conscious idea to essentially be like, yeah, this is a ragtag group of people that don't totally belong together and in real life they'd be completely torn apart by their differences, maybe, but it's a movie, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Right. And so let's let's do the fantasy version of the film because, again, that's what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is telling the kind of, you know, fantasy version of the fucking Top Gun people right. that yeah, of uh, destroy the vaguely ethnically different, you know, enemy <laughs> Uh, that, you know, like... On the far right, their politics innately tend to bleed much further over into fantasy in the yeah. first place. They're all heroes. They, yeah. like, they right. like hero stories. Right. Hero stories are effective of galvanizing publics. Yeah. Right. Failure stories are not. And I think that this is a story of a hero collective. Yeah. And I think that people are relating to that. And I think that there are plenty of people that won't grab onto the idea. But I think the people that are looking for that Again, that catharsis, that larger thing to just feel like there is something possible, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing is it's like pipeline is not about getting people to go blow up pipelines. It's about getting people to contend with the possibility for a successful tactic that is not part of the current lexicon of what we're doing. It's provoking people into optimism that there is a whole lot of shit we haven't explored. Mm -hmm. So let's start thinking about it and talking about it. And I think that feeling of optimism is really important. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when I watched it in the days following, what it left with me was actually more of this allegory of getting any kind of seemingly insurmountable thing done together. And that can be a bunch of people on a Discord who have a thoughts of starting some new kind of media forum, or that can be somebody doing something locally, but it feels allegorical for anything that seems impossible. And you just need to group together with a bunch of people who feel passionately. But I am curious about, because you do show explosives in the film, and I believe that Very there's- like Michael Mann and its yes. diligent research. And so can you just like give us some insight into how you, I mean, are you yourself an explosive expert? How did you do I that? I was very fortuitously, very, very early. I had like just, we just had our first call with Andreas, friend of a friend, connected me to somebody who does actually work in counterterrorism as an explosives expert who very much off the clock, there's a reason he's credited as anonymous, <laughs> but he's a bomb nerd and he 
really hates that bomb making and bombs in movies are total bullshit. Yeah. And he very much wanted us to get it right uh, <laughs> in the film. So it definitely was predominantly him kind of walking us through how he might do this, how he would recommend staying off the grid, you know, <laughs> um, and ultimately like have definitely gotten some flack for this online because people have like been, oh, you collaborated with a counterterrorism person, <laughs> um, you know, which is very silly. But ultimately, you know, yeah, this was at the end of the day, a bomb nerd who who wanted us to get the details right. And so what we see is accurate, like, uh, more yes. or less. It's I mean, like, no, it's, yeah. it's, it, what, what you see is exactly how you would do it. There are a few very, like, you're also seeing some of the easier stuff. Right. Um, there are, like, a few things that specifically, there's, like, three steps to the bomb. There's the blasting cap, there's the bulk explosive, but then there are these, like, PVC pipes that Michael, mm -hmm. the bomb guy, is, like, swapping out. He's, like, talking about it, but that stuff is really hard to make. Uh -huh. And that's something that he would have had to spend months making to oh, right. get that much material. Mm. There's not enough in the movie that you could actually completely go out and do this. Right, um, right, right. But I think that there's also something really important to the provocation of showing people the relative ease and simplicity and straightforwardness of making a bomb. Mm -hmm. Because I think that there is... It's less about, again, trying to get people to go make bombs and more about recognizing the tools that any normal person could have at their disposal for $650 in materials. That's a provocative idea. Mm -hmm. And I think on some level it's an empowering idea mm -hmm. because I think that part of what we get are these things of, you know, work inside of the system and change will come. Mm. Um, and the problem is that We've been working inside of the system with climate for 30 years and no change has come. So at a certain point, again, it's this notion of, well, what else am I supposed to do? And the movie saying, well, there's stuff. Yeah, you can think outside of that you system. Know, and, and, yeah, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bombs. Right. As you said, I think the allegory idea is, I wouldn't say the movie is quite as far as allegory. Yeah, it's but not it's, exactly. But it's I not just, not. It's, it's right. not not also, you know, operating. It's an image for, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not also operating to some extent on that level. And so I think that we wanted the bomb details to be right for that reason. Mm -hmm. And we also consulted with some pipeline techs. Mm. There's this thing in the film where they're kind of shutting off the oil pipelines and trying to blow the pipes at high altitude points to minimize the oil spill. And, you know, that was all kind of a strategy that came from meeting with pipeline people and being like, you know, how big would the bomb need to be? How would they do this in a way that could minimize the environmental impact? I appreciated that. The de those kinds of details, it adds weight. I also, mean, the forthcoming YouTube channel, how to blow up a pipeline dot expert, give you the full, full well-produced yeah. tutorial. Anyways. I guess the basic question is, could you have made this film with this title in Hollywood? Straight up big we Hollywood because did. of it. We technically did. You did, right. I mean, in right. the sense that, you know, there are actors in the film. I'm represented at CAA. CAA Finance represented the movie. They sent the film out to their buyers list. We booked zero meetings. There could not have been less interest in making the movie from kind of the mainstream independent system. Do you think that was fear, system. though? Do you think that was, like, not, not interest, but that was, like, li like fear of liability? I think that there's a hundred reasons right. why somebody would have not wanted to make this film. And I'll kind of, like, loop back to answer that sure, question sure, with sure. a little bit more context, which is to say, you know, Ariella and I went to Cannes 2021. We 
basically just pounded the pavement and talked to anybody we could about the project and ultimately were introduced to Spacemaker and Alex Hughes there who immediately got what we were doing and after 20 minutes of talking to us was like, I'm in. I hope the script is good. Um, <laughs> you know, like I hope you can actually deliver on what you're saying you want this to be. And then separately I was working with Issa, who I wrote my first film um, on a video game with Lyrical and Alex Black, who I had a sense might dig this. And Alex was also like, I'm in and also got what we were doing. So then we kind of knew that virtually everybody was going to say no, but the people that were really passionate about this project mm. were immediately going to say yes, yeah. because you actually don't need everybody to say yes. You right. just need a couple of people that really believe in you. And I think that ultimately it's to their credit that we are also the only movie that sold at TIFF this year huh. at the festival. I think there is a bit of a disconnect between film financiers and distributors, distributors and audiences. I think nobody really knows what to make, how to make it, why to make it. And it's partially because there is no open free marketplace for film distribution anymore. Mm -hmm. The mechanisms of distribution are by and large entirely owned by multinational conglomerates. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, you even want to release your movie on streaming. You have to go through a portal. Hmm. There's very, very few independent movie theaters. There's fewer and fewer every week. It used to be that you had independent video rental stores right. that would build their own collection. And essentially the VHS distributors were an independent company. You don't have that anymore. You know, you have five or six shops that you can sell your shit at, and they're all the shops that are owned by your competitors. <laughs> You know, that's totally fucked. Yeah. And obviously for big studio Hollywood films, there's been struggles and difficulties there. But at the end of the day, they are by and large at this point vertically integrated, especially Disney, which doesn't own the movie theaters, but it practically owns mm. the movie theaters because they own so much of the product that generates income that they can essentially strike whatever deal with the you know theater chains that they want. Disney gets a better deal on tickets than any other distribution company. And like this is a problem kind of all the way down, that we've had such mergers, such consolidation on one hand, and then on the other hand, when it comes to streamers, we've had companies that essentially were able to completely drive all competition out of the marketplace because they had 0% interest rates right. for 15 Zero years. Culture. You know, <laughs> they had essentially free money. And so when you're talking about the contraction of streaming, that's not a response to bad economic conditions. That was the plan. Huh. The plan was to outspend everybody, kill off all of the independent distributors, kill off movie theaters, and then once they own a large enough amount of the market share, they stop spending money because nobody can compete because there's no marketplace to sell your goods. Wow, right. So it's the exact same model that like Uber used to destabilize the taxi industry and that Airbnb used to destabilize the hotel and, and hospitality industry. And obviously these are both industries that had their problems and Hollywood had its problems. Mm -hmm. But the solution to that is not a giant centralization of all things content. And so... I am so happy to be working with Neon yeah, on great. this project, yeah. who is an actual, you know, honest to God, independent film distributor. They get what this is, that are so supportive. I do believe that there is a place for independent film. I do believe that there is a place for independent art making. I do believe that people want that. And I think that it's, it's a matter of finding partners who are willing to find ways to 
destabilize that corporate infrastructure however best they can. But ultimately, the thing that we need- How to blow up a streaming service? I mean, ultimately, the thing we need is antitrust laws. Yeah. You know, we we need to, like, actually, you know, bring back antitrust laws. We need to actually start, like, trying to meaningfully protect our labor, our consumers. Yeah. You know, the federal government has been asleep at the wheel for the last 30 years- In terms of actually meaningfully regulating any of this shit. But when it comes to the culture industry, it's like- the, the fact that Disney was allowed to buy Fox is kind of like mind boggling. Mm-hmm. How do you in any way justify that as something that is not, you know, a monopolistic practice? Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that to kind of bring this back, the problem is, is that again, independent producers and financiers have no idea what does or does not make money. Mm-hmm. A good example of this is like my first film, Cam, which was a film that we made for $1.1 million with Blumhouse. It was sold to Netflix for $1.75 million. So it made a little bit of a healthy profit. That was a film that was streamed tens of millions of times. And I've received $0 from that. How? Um, because there's no royalties. Wow. If I had made that movie 10 years ago, I would have made money off of mm-hmm. it based on how the deal was structured that would be in perpetuity. And I haven't. And that is not a place where you can like actually like meaningfully continue to make independent work because you don't even have the means to sell it. So, and I think that consumers are starting to get wind of this, Mm -hmm. like the craziness of like an $80 million Batgirl movie that just get, I don't know if you've heard about this, but these giant corporations are making so much money that they've realized that they can actually game the system by just canceling movies and TV shows that are shot and then essentially writing it off for a tax deduction. Amazing. And that because they're so big and the content means so little to them, they actually are making more money by not making stuff and taking advantage of the tax This is like the pencil towers in New York City where they're sold as like physical NFTs. You know, I mean, they just, they they hold value or they're somebody's like property loss. They don't exist to actually house a wealthy family. It's like all of this physical energy and resources for something that is entirely, like a totally abstracted purpose, which is just like. Absolutely. I mean, wild. this is one of the key challenges, I mean, obviously secondary to climate, that our generation is grappling with. I mean, anyone who listens to this podcast have heard Julianne and myself talk many times about the collapse of the music industry, of the publishing industry, of the art world as we knew it. Just the floor coming out from underneath you of value, not understanding how to correlate value to creative content. And, you know, maybe the original sin was that it did have a market value or what those levers were, but it's not possible right now. Now, even though people are making tons of money in certain ways. So I think we have to speak openly about it and share information about our industries so that we can, you know, blow up a streaming service or, sorry, we can take yeah, that out, no. but you know what I mean? I mean we have I mean, to I think, think it's about- Im- I think it's important to reckon with the fact that post-enlightenment art has always had a marketplace behind it. It has. You know, and I think this is not anything new, especially mm-hmm. any sort of art that has required capital investment, be it sculpture, painting, printing Literature, a book, right. you know, I think that film is an especially capital intensive process, mm-hmm. but it's a very accessible process. It's something that can reach many, many, many people at scale very easily mm-hmm. and now more easily than ever before. The thing about all of this is that it's not just that people stopped going to the theaters because the internet was there. It's that the theater chains in part pushed by large studio distributors junked their 
beautiful 35 millimeter projectors and replaced them with low quality dim digital projectors, which as Quentin Tarantino says, is like watching television in public. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they essentially took something that was a scarce thing, which was the ability to project a 35 millimeter print to an audience and replaced it with something that was not scarce, which was a digital projector, which now everybody can install in their own home right. at cost. So it's like, yeah, why would I spend money? Money to go to the cinema to get an experience that I can virtually entirely replicate from the comfort of my own home, I wouldn't. I shouldn't. It doesn't actually make sense from a sales perspective. But the chains and studio distributors, like, I think they really traded away their future mm. because they were looking at the immediate short-term savings of not shipping prints anymore. Right. And, and not having to make prints anymore. And being able to have more kind of like terrifying control over the nature of their distribution. But all these things have ultimately totally alienated audiences from actually going to the cinema. And the programming's terrible at most of the mainstream cinemas also. Well, I would say that, that it's, it's what you get when you have corporate consolidation in any industry, which is a lot of the same. And when there's no competition, you get a lot of the same at gradually diminishing quality levels because there's no actual competition to mm. drive it to continue to be better. Right. And so I think that it is actually, from my perspective, very valuable to take a very just like economic view at what's happening to the film industry because I think it's very easy to be spiritual about it, but I don't think it's particularly productive. As I said, it's exactly what happens with any other corporate consolidation. It's just we're seeing it with what was for the last hundred years the fabric of our popular culture. Mm -hmm. And that's very scary. Right. And it's, you know, yes, like the greatest innovation in cinema right now is happening on TikTok, not in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, that there are other reasons to engage in the collective experience of being in the theater. And that is something that I believe in with How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is that, you know... Which was shot on 16 millimeter. Which was shot on film <laughs> and hopefully will be projected on film if I remember to make a print. I wanted to ask, actually, maybe a little array of hope so you went to Harvard, not exactly a film school. I also saw that Eugene Kolturenko was involved in this film, who's, I don't know, adjacent to the broader new models social sphere. Also a filmmaker, made the film Spree. I wanted to ask you, though, how you feel broadly about the world of indie filmmaking and maybe more particularly about the loose group of one or two degrees of separation indie world of filmmaking you're in and the general sustainability of well-crafted indies in the next decade or maybe even from the group you're involved in? Well, I mean, just on the level of Eugene, you know, Eugene is, I think, a, a really talented filmmaker and, and, and a friend and was somebody who, he works with Spacemaker, who was one of our financiers, and Eugene was somebody who also was, especially in the editing of the film, like very involved in just holding our feet to the fire and keeping us honest when it comes to some of these questions about what was or was not too didactic. You know, Eugene was somebody who really, I think, had his finger on the pulse of how to kind of carve the 
story out of the ideas and the movie out of the ideas. And, you know, whenever you're editing a movie for five months and you're kind of nearing the end, you, you need somebody to come kick the shit mm-hmm. out of you. And that's what he that's what he did for us. I think one of the reasons I really respect what Eugene is doing as a filmmaker is I think that he is a great lover of cinema and, a, you know, has a much vaster knowledge of cinema history than I do, but is also somebody who is firmly committed to the future of cinema and trying to imagine what cinema, theatrical cinema, or just cinema in general looks like. He's still plugged into this legacy of what movies have been, but also trying to imagine what movies can be. And I think that's a really important thing to be grappling with, and I think that it's cool to see the way that he is engaging in that tug of war. More broadly speaking, when it comes to where do we go from here, film is naturally, independent film is, in my opinion, heading the way of the art market, where I think that it is probably going to start looking more like a patronage model. It has been. We just have been kind of lying to ourselves Mm -hmm. about that. Now, I certainly hope that How to Blow Up a Pipeline makes a lot of money. This is not a film that was made under a patronage model. This was made under a for-profit model. I think that for it to make money is in itself relevant because it tells the the marketplace of culture production that there is a desire for radical stories in the media, which is helpful for more radical stories mm-hmm. to get made. But there used to be lots of ways in the past to capitalize on things like oil paintings and sculptures and art, and now it's this other thing. And I think that film is realistically going to head in that direction too. But that all depends on whether or not there is a larger will to destabilize and disrupt the nature of the theatrical experience. Because I think that one of the other problems that I see, if I was going to wave a magic wand and fix the theatrical movie-going experience, I could do it very easily. What would it entail? Okay, so you make widgets, right, in this hypothetical scenario I'm setting up. Mm -hmm. And it costs you $250 million to make a widget and then another $250 million to market and sell your widget. And I am an enterprising young widget maker. Uh And I can make a widget for $5 million and I can market my widget for $10 million. So you've spent $500 million on your widget. I've spent 15. Why am I charging the same amount for my widget as you're charging for yours? Right. I, as an independent filmmaker, should have the biggest competitive advantage in any marketplace on planet Earth that I can deliver, you know, 100 minutes of entertainment at a fraction of the cost of what it's going to cost you. But why are we both charging $13 at the fucking box office? I should be charging four. Uh-huh. It should it should be less than a cup of coffee to see an independent movie at the cinema. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, the, the movie theaters are still selling popcorn. That's how they make their fucking money. Right. The seats are empty anyway. So, like, why does it cost so much? Right. Uh, because Disney, literally, when cinemas try to disrupt this model, Disney threatens to pull Avatar if they do. <laughs> right. So, and real so estate's so expensive. Someone can't start their own independent. It's hard. A lot of capital. Exactly. 
especially not in a city where right. an idea like this might first take root. So you have this kind of issue where big corporations are essentially forcing me to charge more money for my movie <laughs> so that I can't be competitive in their marketplace. Crazy, yeah. Which is, again, another anti-competitive tactic that should be regulated and should be banned and never will. No, but it's. I think that that is something that would immediately completely change the game because especially like Gen Z kids, like a $4 experience, Yeah. oh my God, they'd fucking go eight. Totally. Also, get rid of the MPAA. Like, who, why are we rating movies R that have the word <laughs> fuck in them six times? Like, have people- In the age of the internet. Yeah, like, have people kind of, been online? Yeah. Like, like, could movies seem and feel any more out of touch with, yeah. like, the nature of culture? No, they couldn't. So, I'm both- optimistic that there's a lot that could be done and there's a lot of amazing people out there doing great stuff. And also I am pessimistic that some of our larger structures will allow this innovation because that's where they derive their power from. Right. Now well, watch while I never get a deal with a big corporate. <laughs> I don't know. You might, you might open the most successful indie movie chain in uh, America. <laughs> it's very true. Just to end, watching the film, I didn't think of it as propaganda, but I do think it's like actually very effective propaganda. Do you have an issue with the film being considered propaganda? Is there a reason why that word doesn't fit, whether it or not it was your intention? I'm just going, I'm not curious for the definition of propaganda. <sighs> so information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. Okay. Uh, let's like work off of that definition. Yeah. I think that the problem is that like on some level, by that definition, like all art is propaganda yeah. because all art is like some sort of a political reflection of the ideologies that have gone into its creation. So on that level, like, sure, whatever. Yeah. I think on another level, it's like, is the movie telling people to go blow up pipelines? I don't think so. I don't think anybody is going to see this movie and because they've seen this movie, they're going to go blow up a pipeline. I think that probably they're going to see this movie and they're going to think about what kind of tactics might be necessary. They might feel more inspired to take action against climate change because, as I've said, they might be given this feeling and this catharsis around action. But I think that the people that may go blow up pipelines, they're, like, well on their way to doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's like they don't need my movie to, yeah. to go do whatever they're doing. They might see the movie and feel, like, cool <laughs> about it, but that's not, like, the motivating cause. Right. Like. This isn't a film like Top Gun Maverick or like like Captain Marvel is a great example of a film that is like that's actual U.S. military propaganda. That is a that movie is that had the explicit goal to drive recruitment for the United States Air Force. Recruitment rates went up 500% in the wake of Captain Marvel. Like, that's a propagandistic movie. I think that if you kind of are, like, holding Pipeline up, we're, like, absolutely engaged in a very similar vernacular of action Hollywood dramatic structure and ideas. But I think that those are also movies in which there is absolutely no moral complication to the actions of the main characters. And I think that that makes them propagandistic mm -hmm. um, in the way of there is only good and no bad. And I would say in Pipeline, the characters are significantly more complicated 
you know, they don't sit around in Top Gun Maverick being like, is bombing the enemy actually the correct? Like, what if we <laughs> what if we kill people by you know? It's like there's there's you know there, there's don't not, think just do yeah exactly. yeah, yeah. It's, right. it's 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 just it's just kill the enemy is the message of that film. Point being, I think that the movie is flirting with the vernacular of propaganda, but it's not in itself striving to be as morally simplistic as a work of propaganda is kind of necessitated to be to be a good advertisement for mm. its ideas. I think if there's something that Pipeline is propagandistic of, it is, as I kind of continue to say, this question of what kind of tactics are going to be necessary to fight climate change. But I don't think it's being, it's not propagandizing the answer of go blow mm-hmm. the pipeline. Right. Which I've never actually quite put my finger on that, but I think that that's, that's nice really maybe the core it. of it mm-hmm. is, is, yes, it's propagandizing a question, but not an answer. I mean, it's different, but it does remind me a little bit of the early aughts tacoon and invisible committee literature. I mean, theirs like is much more didactic. It has a very particular point of view that it's trying to impress on people, but it's still just the call. It's not saying here's the prescription of what to do it. It's just saying like, be aware that you have the option to think outside of the structure. But that's a, yeah, I think that's a nice way of framing it. Well, propaganda or not, I think it's the most effective climate action vibe ever <laughs> created. I agree. And I think that's extremely important in contemporary life. Just a mood movie of like 2022-3 also. I mean, it just captures the general stimmung of this headspace Absolutely. that we're in. Blow up a pipeline mood. is That's the mood of yeah. 2022. <laughs> so. Let's hope the kids agree. <laughs> Daniel Goldhaber, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and joining us here in Berlin, which is an extra bonus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You'll be able to watch uh, the next film in Goldhaber Cinemas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Ciao. Thank you for listening to New Models, and thank you, Daniel Goldhaber, for joining us. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is in U.S. theaters now, distributed by Neon Films. A shout-out to Sean Glass for introducing Daniel to us last fall on the hunch that we'd have a lot to talk about. This episode hopefully proves Sean's intuition correct. We look forward to discussing the film and this episode in the Discord. Remember to boost us in the algos and in your social networks online and off. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.